traditional. This is, this is the way the church has celebrated the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord for 2,000 years, beginning on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. The church recognizes Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem as a king. And he's received by the people as a king. And then he goes through ministry that week, working each day his way through uh, the steps towards the cross. And after resting and reclining in Wednesday in Bethany, Thursday he went back into Jerusalem for the last time. He entered directly into the city and called on his men to find an upper room where they might celebrate the supper together, the Passover meal. And they went up into the upper room together and Jesus served them. That's what we commemorate tonight. Tonight is about commemorating and working to understand the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The upper room discourse from John 13 to John 16 is a very tightly packaged delivery of what it means for God to love us and what he is called to do. And we're going to talk about that. And then tomorrow night we'll join with our sister churches and we will celebrate the cross. Um, And then on Sunday we will join together on Resurrection Sunday to worship the risen Lord. That's the tradition of the church. And some people ask, what about Saturday? It's interesting, you know, uh, my mind's been stirred about that over the last couple of weeks. You know, the, the Saturday when the Lord is buried, it is the Jewish Sabbath day. And just as God himself, when he created the world, made the seventh day holy, he rested from all of his work. Jesus Christ rested on the Sabbath day. His body in the tomb, all the work of salvation had been done. It was finished. And then on the first day of the week, he rose up to go back (laughs) into life everlasting. Never again to rest from his work for us. Man, what what a powerful thing we get to behold and get to become a part of. I want to bring you a sermon tonight entitled, Love So Divine. John 15, 12 through 16 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. And I just make a quick note there. It's popular in our day to refer to Christ as our friend, like Jesus is my friend. I want to tell you the Bible never refers to him that way, like people saying Jesus is a friend. The Bible always says in both old and new that God became or chose to be the friend. So we just, I think it's an important distinction because when you start talking about Jesus like a friend and you sing that 1970s era song, you know, Jesus is just my friend. He's not just your friend. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And the Lord of heaven and earth calls these people his friends. It's in a profound truth. If you do what I command you, He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, 
so that you will love one another. One of the great hymns of the church was written by Charles Wesley in 1738, and it's entitled, And Can It Be? And uh, I want to read a couple of verses of it for you as we get started. It says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Amazing love, how can it be? That thou, my God, should die for me. A second verse, listen to these words. He left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Tonight, we are observing the night on which our Lord entered the upper room with the men to celebrate for the last time in this life the Passover meal. He prepared the room and welcomed his disciples into the feast as a good host would. And this is what John says about that. John says, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. From the beginning of this account, on this night, in John 13, the theme is clearly the love of Jesus for his disciples. John records that as they sat at the table, the Lord, watching them there at the table, put off his outer garment and put on the garment of a servant and a towel of a servant. And he began to serve them by washing their feet. The lowest job in the home was to wash the feet of those who had traveled on the dirty roads to come in to eat a meal and if you know anything about their time, they sat in couch style, like on the floor, cushion style on the floor, with their feet there next to the table. And so the lowest servant of the house washed the feet and before the meal. And that's what Jesus did. He guarded him, garnered around himself the towel of a servant, the house servant, and he began to wash the feet. And we see in this his love for his men. He became a servant to them. Because there was no act too costly to Jesus to secure for his men and for us eternal life. Millions have come to faith through the work of the apostles and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was willing to do what it took to bring them to salvation, to, to display his love. Jesus was not simply an example he was not simply an example of what it looks like to serve and love other people. No, he is the exact image of the eternal God. Choosing to identify with mere humans. So that the love of God is fulfilled expressly in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This, is, this upper room teaching is designed to express 
not the emotion of love only, but the reality of covenant love that is the foundation of a relationship with God. And those who have come to know the love of this covenant-keeping God will in turn live out love toward one another, displaying to the world the magnificence of this eternal love that only God could ever give. We need to be careful as we talk about the love of God, so I want to be careful. It's easy for us to think of the everlasting covenant love of God as a mere sentiment or emotion or feeling. That's not all that it is. God does have, he's not controlled by, but he does have emotion. He does have feelings. He never makes decisions or actions out of those feelings. And we best be glad that he doesn't. All of his decisions are controlled by his mind, by his will, by his eternal determination to love us, to act in love towards us. So it's not only an emotion. It's more than that. Listen to what one commentator said about what I'm talking about here, covenant love. That love which is beyond feeling, emotion, romance. And some of you uh, will already know these things, but just listen to this. Let it soak in tonight. Many biblical words such as mercy, compassion, love, grace, faithfulness relate to the Hebrew word hesed. But None of these completely summarize the concept. Hesed is not only an emotion or a feeling, but involves action on behalf of someone who is in need. Hesed describes a sense of love and loyalty that inspires merciful, compassionate behavior toward another person. You know, if we think about Hesed or God's covenant love, His steadfast love, as it's often translated in the Old Testament, it's mentioned 250 times in the Old Testament, expresses an essential part of God's character, who He is. The New Testament says, as an expression of this hesed, this covenant love, it says in 1 John, which we often quote, God is love. This is not to mean He's not all the other things. But in the very essence of who God is, he is love. It's not a feeling, in other words, only. You see what I'm saying? It's a part of who he is. It's an expressed expressed part of his nature, love. So it's not just emotion. It's not just feeling, but it involves action on behalf of someone who's in need. 250 times we see it. When God appeared to Moses to give the law the second time, By the way, after Moses destroyed the first tablets, God then appeared to him a second time and made the tablets of the law again after (laughs) Moses had expressed uh, anger towards the people. This is what the Lord said. He described himself as abounding in, filled with covenant love. Hesed, which is translated love and faithfulness, unfailing love, faithful love, steadfast love, loyal love. In in the Bible, in the Old Testament, listen, the core idea of this term is to communicate to us loyalty, faithfulness within a relationship. Thus, Hesed is closely related to God's covenant with his people. In the Old Covenant Israel and now in the church, God expresses and acts on his love. As it relates to the concept of love, 
covenant love, Hesed expresses God's faithfulness to his people. In Exodus 20, verse 6, God says that he lavishes his covenant love for a thousand generations. The largest number in the Hebrew numbering system, 1,000. It speaks to the infinite nature of God's love. It's infinite. They picked the largest number because they said, we know no number past this number. And when we see it in the text of the scriptures, it is to bring to us, to mind to us, that he lavishes this love on a thousand generations, on those who love him and obey his commands. This trustworthy, ever-enduring, loyal aspect of God's covenant love resonates throughout all of the Old Testament. Do away with the thought in your mind that in the Old Testament, God's angry and like striking people down and hateful. And then in the New Testament, God becomes loving and gentle and lowly and kind in Jesus. No, God from beginning to end is love. He is in the beginning and in the end expressing his acts of love towards his people. God is a loving God. In the Bible, This covenant love often describes the mercy and compassion of God. When Moses interceded for the people, he appealed to God's hesed. Listen to what he said. The Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion in keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love. Please pardon the sin of this people just as you have forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. God's covenant relationship with his people results in his loyal love and faithfulness even when his people are unfailing. Unfaithful, I'm sorry, unfaithful to him. Always at the heart of his love lies God's generous sense of compassion, grace, and mercy. Hesed goes beyond just some ordinary kindness and friendship. It's the inclination of the heart to show amazing grace to the one he loves. Hesed runs deeper than social expressions, responsibilities, fluctuating emotions, or what is deserved or earned by the recipient. God's covenant love finds its home in committed familial love, and it comes to life in the actions of his son, Jesus Christ. Right here in the upper room, we see him displaying this love. Not all the way through to the end of the supper, but I want to remind you that when Jesus called them to the Passover meal and sat them down and hugged their necks as the Jewish people would have done, kissing them as they came in, don't you know and don't you remember and shouldn't we never forget that among those gathering maybe in the front of the line was the betrayer Judas Jesus kissed him and hugged him and said, come sit at the table. Let's eat. He washed his feet. The message of the gospel is God's act of forgiveness and salvation in Jesus is rooted in his covenant love. The love of God extends far beyond duty or expectations. 
His forgiveness of sin fulfills a need that is basic to all other needs in the relationship between human beings and God's. The restoration and continuation of fellowship with God in Jesus Christ. God's covenant love manifested in forgiveness makes a relationship with impossible. That forgiveness comes to us freely as a gift from God based on the sacrificial acts in the cross of Christ. And so it is with this backdrop, uh, now a fuller understanding of what we mean when we say God loves us. <laughs> it's with that background that I look at our passage tonight and say that Jesus commands us, church, commands us to love one another just as he loved us. Church, we're here tonight. If you're in Christ, you're here tonight because Christ loved us with an eternal, loyal love. And he is calling us to have that same love for one another. It's not a love that is constrained by feeling, common interest, the like of a personality, mutual admiration for one another. All those things characterize what it means to love someone in a human sense. And while this is not wrong, even necessary, it is not what Jesus is commanding us to do in this passage. Jesus is calling us to covenant love based only on the reality of our connection to Him through His Spirit which he gave to us through regeneration and salvation. Therefore, the source of our love for one another, Christians, is supernatural. We love one another because he loved us. And on the night of Passover, he once again tells his men that he's going to act on his covenant love by laying down his life for them. Jesus intentionally shifts from talking to them as servants to calling them friends. The intimacy between him and his disciples shows us the relationship that he has with us, Grace Fellowship. He loves us with true covenant love, which makes us his friend. And in other places, we know the Bible tells us that through him, we are now in the family. Of God. Amazing love. How can it be that my God should die for me? The Lord continues in this passage to tell us that we have this relationship with Him because He has chosen us and He has appointed us that we should go and bear fruit and that our fruit should abide so that whatever we ask of the Father in the name of Jesus, He may give it to us so that you will love one another. Now He's speaking to the disciples. In telling the disciples that He chose them and appointed them to bear fruit, we must not think that this is only a statement that's true about the disciples. This is the way that all of those who have a relationship with God come into that relationship. We are, brought, we are brought into relationship with the living God through His covenant love. 
And he has acted on that love in the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, so that we are now called his friends. Whatever we ask of the Father, that causes, that causes the love and bond between us and the fellow saints to continue to grow, then he will give it to us. Do you believe that? Whatever you ask of God that grows the bond of love in the spirit between believers, then God is pleased to give it to you. Notice in verse 17 that it begins with a, what, so that statement. This is the ground statement, the grounding statement in English that tells us how it is that God is able to answer yes to our request. He always answers what is asked by those who abide in him when that request is in keeping with God's covenant love. Grace Fellowship, Jesus has commanded us to love one another in the same love that he has loved us. We are to have this love because our friend has laid down his life for us. Jesus chose us and appointed us to bear fruit so that whatever we ask the Father in Christ's name, he will give it to us so that our love for one another grows and deepens over time. Tis mercy all. Immense and free. For oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? The chief of sinners. The Judas in the room. The reason that he bore the cross tomorrow. It's because he chose before time to act on his covenant love so that you and I might be called his friend and might be brought into his family. So now we get to celebrate together. The Bible tells us that at the end of their Passover meal together, as they were probably sitting around, Judas had left. He's gone to finish his act of betrayal. And now it's just Christ and his closest men. And he, looking over them, sees them. And in them, listen to me, in them, he saw the fruit. That would be his church. So much so that we can say he saw us. When he instituted the supper, he didn't think just about 11 men sitting around a table. He thought about millions of people who would be the fruit of his work and would come to his table generation after generation after generation to eat his flesh and drink his blood and live forever. Church, that's what we celebrate when we come to the table of the Lord. No man has the right to open the table that Christ has opened. No man has the right to close the table. Only Christ has that right. And so if you're with us and you're not in him, you don't belong to him, I don't close the table on you. 
Jesus has closed the table of communion on you. And you say, but you said he's loving. He's so loving that he sent Judas out of the room before he lifted the bread and said, take and eat my flesh. Take and drink my blood. Why? Because in only the way God can, he loved Judas enough not to lie to him. He could make no covenant promise with Judas. Judas was not part of his family. So he sent him from the room. In sending Judas from the room, he kept the promise to his men, and he didn't lie to anyone. And the way that's brought over into the church is to say, I'm not going to lie to you because he's not lying to you. If you don't belong to him, then this table doesn't belong to you. Yet. Because even after Judas had betrayed our Lord, had he turned in faith and repented of his sin and called on Christ as Lord, he would have been saved. How do we know? Carlton, you're conjecturing. No. Because Peter ate the meal and left the supper. And denounced the Lord three times. Went away in tears. Totally crushed. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, Tell Peter, I'm risen. When we went to the upper room, he offered Peter fellowship. And when he sat on the bank of the lake that early morning, he established Peter in his love. See, you may be here tonight, and you may still be in the category of a rejecter, one who hates Christ, but you don't have to stay there. I'm offering to you something much more than physical elements. I offer to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if you bow your knee before him and you call on him for your salvation, he will save you completely, fully, eternally. And you will make your profession of faith and we will baptize you in that pool. And the next time we take the supper at the end of April, you can eat the supper with us. So tonight, if you're lost, don't eat. Plead to be saved to the only one who can save you. To everyone else, I say, the Lord has opened the table, and he says, come and feast with me. So I'm going to ask our, our band to come back, sing, and this is what we're going to do. This is the first time we've done this in over a year now. We're going to come forward, and we're going to take the elements of the communion. And this is why we come forward like we do. We love to do this. We've not done it. We've refrained from doing it. And 
by God's grace, we're doing it again. Still the prepackaged stuff, but I guess it qualifies as bread. <clears throat> you come forward to take these elements, church, because if, as you come to Christ, you don't come as a part of a group. You don't come as a part of a family. You come as a person, as an individual. Christ calls you to himself, and you come. And so in that same way, we're going to ask as they sing in just a moment,